Hello, Shoreline City. I'm incredibly excited about today. Thrilled that you are with us. I need you to know we love you tremendously. Pray that your heart is already encouraged through uh, just what God has been doing, not just in this church family, but around the world. You need to know that God is working. You need to know that in the midst of everything that's taken place in our society, that God has not fallen off of his throne. That the God that we serve is not uh, biting his nails. He's not shuddering in a corner somewhere. He is high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple, which means his house is filled with victory. His mouth is filled with victory. He is vic the embodiment of victory. And today, as we prepare to jump into God's word, you're going to be entering into new levels of victory. But no, not only are we going to be walking into new levels of victory today, y'all, you need to know today, we're all going to be challenged and encouraged. We're all going to be pushed forward. As I was preparing this message, I just got to let you know, as I was preparing this message, I'm working on this sermon. God was working on me. Now, that usually happens every week, but this week in particular, as I've been praying about what's been going on in our world, this quilt series that we have been in, this is week Number three, week number one, the jaws of life. Week number two, one isn't the loneliest number. And now here we are on week number three. A quilt, you've heard of one, you've seen one. Many different pieces being stitched together to form one thing, one body, one uh, blanket. So a person can be, can be wrapped, can be covered, can be comforted. Here we are in the quilt series, Spiritual Direction for the Soul of Our Church. My mandate is not necessarily to speak to the world. My mandate is to speak to our church and maybe even the church at large saying, hey, church, family, it's time for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. It's time for us to be marked not by the things of this world, but to be marked by the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but the division and the discord in our world, it can be incredibly sickening. But what can be even more sickening is when that division and discord seeps into the very house of God. And I see God declaring over his bride, declaring over the church, hey, church, I want you to remember, I prayed that you would be one. I prayed that you would come together in complete unity. I prayed that you would be a light in the world. I prayed that your love for each other would be an announcement to the world that I'm for them, that I have not forgotten about them, that I'm on their side, that I'm working battles, that I still forgive sin, that I still take away shame. Church, we have a mandate, and it goes far beyond the temporary things of this world. You and I have been mandated for eternal things. So if week number one was the jaws of life and week number two was one is the loneliest number, week number three, the title is simply they. They. Oh, go ahead and write it in the chats and let's just get ready to go on a fantastic ride. What we're going to do is step back to the year 1000. Thousands of years from the day and age we are in. In about that year 1000, King David, you've probably heard of him with David and Goliath. Yes, that David. He becomes king of Israel. He is now over both uh, Judah and Israel. And he has taken this position about 10 years earlier. His predecessor had passed away. His predecessor was King Saul. King Saul 
had a son named Jonathan. So follow with me here for a second. You've got David as king about the year 1000. And about 10 years before that, King Saul died along with his son, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan and David were best friends. These guys were like Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. These guys were ride or dies. They were bad boys for life, if you will. They were going to be with each other through thick and thin. And, and their father, uh, Jonathan's father, Saul, he couldn't stand David and was hunting him down his whole life. You can read all of that in 1 Samuel. But, but when Saul and Jonathan die in battle, there is this incident that happens, this, this moment that takes place. And it's kind of shoved in Scripture. It's just one verse, but it's filled with so much potential. It's a tragic verse. It's a heart-breaking uh, verse. It, it's a verse that, that can make you uh, squint and, and, and maybe shudder a little bit because it, you, you'll, you'll see the pain of it. You'll, you'll see uh, the, the difficulty. You'll see the tragedy of it. But I want you to know in the midst of that tragedy, God is going to redeem in a very, very powerful way. Go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse number 4. It says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was about five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Saul and Jonathan die in battle. They die in battle, and the nurse who is taking care of, of, Jonathan, of Jonathan's son is hears word that, that the king and the prince have died. So that means a new king is going to come into power. That new king is going to, who's going to come into power is most likely going to kill this heir of the throne. So this nurse, caring and loving and wanting the best for Mephibosheth, this five-year-old boy picks him up in a haste and begins to run to bring him to safety. And I don't know what she trips over. I don't know what she stumbles on. But somehow, some way, she falls and she drops this five-year-old boy. And this boy, he, uh, he goes from walking to disabled. You ever met someone that's not able to do or doesn't see things or do things the way you do them? You ever met someone and you're interacting with them? You're like, oh, I, I wouldn't eat like that at the table, or I wouldn't say that in this setting, or I wouldn't ask that question. I, I've got some friends, you know, they'll ask you weird questions like, hey, so how much money do you make? It's like, whoa, 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 hey, we're not that kind of friend. You don't, you don't just throw that up in the, throw that out in the middle of conversation. There, there's just some things that are off limits, but for some people, they're like, well, what are you talking about? That's just normal to me. Well, there's a reason that all of us do what we do. There's a reason all of us act 
how we act. There was a reason that Mephibosheth was disabled in both his feet. Now, if you just met him, if you just walked up on him and, and you didn't know his backstory, maybe you would judge him. Maybe you would have pity on him. Maybe you would want to walk away from him or maybe you would lean in closer to him. I pray that we would be the type of people that would lean in closer. But one thing we know for sure is you would not necessarily know his story. Can I just tell you that there are some women that hate men and maybe they don't just hate men for the fun of it. Maybe they hate men because every man in their life has abused them. Maybe your boss is not out to make your life a living hell. Maybe, just maybe, your boss has gone through three spouses that have cheated on him or her, and they're so jaded on the inside, so all they know how to do is condemn and berate those individuals that they're leading. Maybe the teenagers that you see on the news and, and maybe the young people that you see partying, maybe they're just not about throwing their lives away. Maybe they're not just about criminal behavior. Maybe they're in that gang because their family dropped them at some point in time and some gang member invited them in and now this gang is the only family that they've ever known. Maybe someone's turning to drugs not because they're just an evil person. Maybe there's so much brokenness going on on the inside of them that's the only way they know to numb their pain. Maybe people are picking up a bottle, not because they are rude and nasty and terrible people. Maybe there has been so much trauma that has gone on the inside of them. The only way they know to get a good night's sleep is to pick up a bottle. I'm not excusing behavior, friends. I'm not saying the different things are right. I'm just saying there's a story behind why someone might be disabled. There's a story behind why you vote how you vote and how you talk how you talk and you live where you live and you give how you give. You didn't just end up there. There's a story to your life. And what we can end up doing sometimes, we like to remove the story away from people and just want to demonize individuals or just want to put them in a certain box. But you know this, like I know this, you're more than a tweet and you're more than an Instagram post and you're more than just what you did when you were a teenager and you're more than what you did in your first marriage and you're more what you did in your first company. You're more than all of that. But for whatever reason, we keep trying to grab people and just put them in this little box saying, this is exactly who you are. This is who you You've always been and who you will always be. But that's not what we see in Scripture. So here, we got this boy, this five-year-old boy, that in one moment, one moment, friends, he goes from playing to paraplegic in one moment. I mean, it's, it's, it's somebody's grabbing him. Now, in this case, in the Bible, it was, it was unintentional. The nurse didn't mean to do this. For others of us, we've gotten some wounds in our life. It wasn't unintentional by the person who hurt us. It may have been on purpose. I, I don't know 
I don't know everyone's story. I'm just talking about Mephibosheth for right now, and, and you can attach yourself to the story how, how you see fit, but this nurse was trying to help him. She was trying to cover him. She was trying to support him, and in her trying to do the right thing, she ended up messing things up for this young boy's life. One moment, you know, like I know, it just takes one moment for your life to blow up. It takes one text message. It takes one email that you saw on your husband's laptop. It takes one drop of a gavel that you would hear in a courtroom. It just takes one doctor's visit. It takes one phone call. It takes one conversation with some friends talking about you behind your back. It just takes one, it just takes one moment for, for your life to go from what you thought it was to it being turned upside down. Shoot, we all know it took one moment, it seems like, for the world to get turned upside down with COVID. It was like we were all just going about our lives and all of a sudden everything shut down and now people are arguing about masks and no mask and this and that and you got all this craziness going on. It just took one moment. The, the great thing about one moment is, uh, is, yes, things can go bad in one moment, but there's also one moment that you can have with Jesus that can also change everything. <laughs> one moment that you can have with the grace of God that can take you from lost to found. There's one moment that you can have with a Savior that takes you from blind to being able to see. There's one moment that many of us today have experienced that when we were lost and broken and dead in our trespasses and in our sins, but we heard the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in, that, in his death, burial, and resurrection, we no longer need to be separated from God, but we can be brought to new life in him. And it just took one moment for us to not say a fancy prayer, but us to say, God, I believe. God, you can have my heart. God, you can have my life. God, I messed up. I don't even know how to pray right right now, but I do know I don't want to be the same anymore. Would you change me? Would you rearrange me? Would you make me brand new? And in one moment, the grace of God said, I'll clean you up. I'll transform you. I'll change you. I'll make you new. It just took one moment. It just took one Friday on a cross, and it just took one Sunday of Jesus coming out of a grave for everything to be changed. Yeah, it was one moment for Mephibosheth, for sure. It's one moment for all of us. That's just introduction stuff. Because <laughs> that's chapter four. I, I want you to walk past chapter five with me. And in chapter five, he, David conquers Jerusalem and becomes king. And, and walk through chapter 6 with me. And in chapter 6, he brings the ark back to Jerusalem and he dances before the ark with all of his might. He becomes so undignified, giving all of his worship and all of his thanks to God. Walk with me to, through, through chapter number 7 when God gives some ridiculously great promises to David. And David is absolutely overwhelmed at the promises. And he's like, God, who am I? Why would you even think about me? He, he hears about the goodness of God and he responds with gratitude. It's absolutely beautiful. That's just chapter 7. Then you can go ahead and 
go to chapter 8, and you see in chapter 8 victory after victory after victory after victory. You see David just winning battle after battle because God is on his side. And since we've walked through all of those chapters, now let's just sit for a second. Sit with me. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And let's walk through this passage of Scripture. Because I think God wants to speak some more things to our heart. David asked, verse number 1, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? You remember, Saul was the old king. Jonathan was Saul's son, David's best friend. David now sitting in his palace in Jerusalem, and he's asking, is there anybody left I can show kindness to? Go with me to verse number two. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. If that's your name, that's a beautiful name. It's a biblical name. I'm not sure what that name means, but your parents really had to dig deep to find that name here in the Bible. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba at your service? He replied. So this guy, Ziba, used to work for the old king. He's obviously in the know because they brought him to David, and they were thinking this man knows what has gone on with Saul and Jonathan's family. That's verse 2. Now go with me to verse 3. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Let me just pause for a second right there. Now let me take it from Old Testament to New Testament for just a second. Let me take it from Samuel and bring it all the way to the book of Romans. Because in Romans chapter 2, verse number 4, it tells us God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. It's not God's anger that leads you to repentance. It's not God with some closed fist that's intended to lead you to repentance. My friends, the scripture teaches us that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So now we are paralleling these two passages of scripture in Romans and in 2 Samuel, and we're discovering that the king in 2 Samuel is representing God, and God here is crying out, can I show kindness? to anybody. Is there anyone of my enemy's household that I can show kindness to? Keep on going with me in verse number three. Zebra answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Here it is, Mephibosheth, the guy that we read about in chapter four, verse number four. The guy that really only has one other time that he's talked about in the Bible. He just shows up, uh, it seems out of nowhere in chapter 4, verse number 4. But now in chapter number 9, we are discovering that his name is now in front of the king. That the man that was lame and broken, now his, his name is in front of the king. So this is good news. This is good news. Chapter verse number 5. So, so day, oh, sorry, verse number 4. Where is he? The king asked, where is he at? How, how, how come he's not here? Where is he? Ziba answered, uh, he, he's, he's down the road at the, at the house of uh, Makir. 
son of Amiel, in, in Lodabar. Those of you who are really old will remember Eldabarge. That's you, for some reason, that random thing came to my brain when I just said that. He's in Lodabar. Lodabar, you know what that means? That place means no thing. That's what the, the name Lodabar means. Where's Mephibosheth? He's in no thing. Uh, putting it another way, he's in the middle of nowhere. He's five years old. He's in line for the throne. A nurse picks him up, trying to help him, drops him. And now he's in a spot where he's like in the middle of nowhere. And now that he's in the middle of nowhere, he thinks he's forgotten forever. He thinks he has to hide out forever. He's getting older and older and older, maturing, developing, maybe dreaming about what could have been. But now he's found himself in the middle of nowhere. Have you felt that at all? Have you felt at some point in time to the middle of shelter in place or quarantine or in the middle of a divorce or in the middle of something going on with your kids or in the middle of something going on with your best friends or in the middle of trying to get ready for grad school or in the middle of trying to get a company off the ground? Have you felt like you're in the middle of nowhere? I mean, like at some point in time, have you felt like, like you're just lost? Like, like wh where am I right now? But the king's like, where's he at? I need somebody. In verse 5, king, so king had him brought from the middle of nowhere. The king said, go get him. Hey, don't leave him out there. Go get him. Okay, let me parallel again with the New Testament for just a second. We're going somewhere, okay? Stick with me. Luke. Go with me to Luke. Ooh, I think it's chapter... 14, Luke chapter 14, verse 21, here's Jesus talking about this great banquet that's going to be thrown. And the first servant went out to try to invite people in, and people made excuse after excuse after excuse why they couldn't come to the banquet. So verse number 21, the servant uh, came back and reported this to his master, like the people got, have excuses, they're not coming. Then the owner of the house became angry, and he ordered his servant, I need you to, I need you to do something. I don't need you to stay. I need you to go. I need you to go out quickly. And I want you to go out quickly into the streets, into those COVID streets. I need you to go out there into the streets. I need you to go into the rich streets and the poor streets. I need you to go out into the streets. I need you to go into the streets of those with GEDs and those with PhDs. I need you to go into the streets. Don't stay here. Don't keep looking at me. I need you. You're my servant. I need you to go into the streets. And what I want you to do when you get to the streets is I want you to go to the alleys of the town and I want you to bring in the poor. I want you to bring in the crippled. I want you to bring in the blind. I want you to bring in the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room at 
the table. So then the master told his servant, go out to the roads, go out to the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Do you see the heart of our God? Do you see our God is wanting a full house? Do you see our God is wanting a full table? Do you see that our God is saying, go ahead and get the ones that everybody else is walking past? Get the ones that people want to marginalize? Get the ones that people want to step over? Get the ones that people want to talk bad about? Get the ones that people want to turn their back on? Get the ones that people think don't matter? I want you to get them, and I want you to bring them in. Don't stand here just looking at me. Don't just stay in the church on Sunday. Don't just keep waiting for the building to open up. I need you right now to go into the streets and go into the alleys and go into Walmart and go into Target and go into the mall and go everywhere you possibly can and compel the people to come in. I'm telling you, there is room in the house of God for all of us. So here he is. Go. So the king had him brought from verse 5, the middle of nowhere. And I want to read verses 6 through 8. When Mephibosheth came, Mephibosheth, son of David, son of Jonathan, rather, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. So now, somehow, some way, he's he's kneeling over because he can't believe he's in front of the king. He's been in the middle of nowhere. He's been lame his whole life. And now he's in front of the king. How, How did I end up here? Later on, he calls himself a dog. He can't even believe that he has this opportunity. So he came and he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, don't be afraid. This is what God's speaking to you. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore you to all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Man, have you ever felt like this? Like, God, how in the world would you care about me so much? God, how in the world would you extend that type of grace towards me? God, how in the world would you pick me when I wouldn't pick me? God, how in the world would you give me the opportunity to be your hands and feet when my hands and feet have been dirty for so long? God, how in the world would you use my voice when I've used my voice to tear people down? God, how in the world would you use my past when I'm trying to forget my past? But here you are, God, trying to redeem my past. God, how in the world would you care about a dead dog like me? And the king is looking at him saying, you're not a dead dog to me. As a matter of fact, because of your relationship with Jonathan, that's why you can now have a relationship with me. I got so much in this, okay? I have so much and not even enough time. If David represents God the Father, Mephibosheth is only getting to this spot with the king because of his relationship with Jonathan. You and I are only getting to God not because we're lame, not because we're broken, 
It's not because God's like, oh, I'm so sorry for you. You're a little victim. No, 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 no. You and I are getting to the palace, to the table, because of our relationship with Jesus. And God is looking at you going, hey, son, daughter, because you're connected to Jesus, you're now connected to me. Come on in and sit at my table. Now here I got a plot twist for you. Plot twist. Plot twist. Second Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Read it later. Because David makes a decree. And he says in 2 Samuel chapter 5, 6 and 8, anybody who's blind and lame is banned from entering the palace. Four chapters earlier, he says anyone that's like Mephibosheth can't come in. And now he's accepting the one that he said couldn't come in. Okay, um, let me... Let me. Can we, can we get a little uncomfortable for just a second? Can we get a little uncomfortable? Who is it that's welcome at the king's table? Who is it that's welcome at the king's table? Have you ever uh, heard of a, a hagioscope? Another term is leper's window. There was a day and time where the church built its buildings and put a small little opening on the outside so that as I read it, the, the lepers and the non-desirables could see the service without coming in and without having contact with the rest of the congregation. So some church people were sitting around saying, hey, how can we express the heart of our Father perfectly? How can we show the world the love of Almighty God? How can we show them that they are accepted and that they are loved? How can we do that? I know, I know. Let's put the clean people inside and everybody else who we consider dirty, let's put them on the outside. But we're going to be really, really gracious. What we're going to do is we're going to put a little opening in the concrete so they can look and see, but they can't enter in. How crazy is that? I pray, I pray, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 250 years from now, our children and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren aren't looking back on this day saying, what was the church thinking? Why was the church not allowing everybody to come in? Why was the church putting up sign after sign and wall after wall? Because our world right now is more in need of Jesus than it's ever been before. But I ask you, friends, and I'm asking myself this. 
What signs have we put up in our hearts, in our conversations, in our behaviors that are telling people, you can't come in. You're not welcome. Because our world is putting up a whole bunch of signs. Our world is putting up signs left and right. And they're saying they aren't welcome, they aren't welcome, they aren't welcome. So I ask you this question. Who's your they? Who's your they? And now I'm, I'm about to step all in it, okay? Anything I've said that has offended you at any point in time during this uh, series, I do apologize. My goal was never to offend. <laughs> Anything I said that was convicting, well, you got to take that up with the Lord. <laughs> but right now, I'm about to step right into a they. Are you ready? Hand me my stuff. Yep. This hat says, make America great again. You think, oh, it just means make America great again. And this sign says, Black Lives Matter. And somebody thinks, well, it just means Black Lives Matter. And it just depends on where you're seated. Because some people are wearing this hat thinking it represents only the hat, and it's only a statement. And other people are using this sign, and they're saying it's just an announcement that, that black people matter, that they have value and worth. But there's some folks that are looking at individuals wearing this hat or folks carrying this sign, and they're they to you. I ask you, is there room at the king's table for this and this? Is there room? Is God's grace and kindness wide enough and big enough and deep enough and strong enough? Is there, is there room for these two symbols and the people that would wear them or the people that would carry them? Is there room? Now, some of y'all maybe already logged off. You've turned it off and you're like, I can't believe this left-wing church or I can't believe this right-wing church. And I'm just letting you know we're not left, we're not right, we're Jesus. We're a cross church. We're up and down and left and right. That's what we are here. I'm just wondering, church... Are you interested in being the church? Or are you interested in telling people they can't come to the table? What signs have you set up in your heart? I've been asking myself what signs I've set up in mine because I've been hurt during this time. I've been hurt. So I'm just wondering, God, is it, has, any, has any junk got into me? that I don't want to have in me because I'm not here ultimately to represent anything of this world. I'm here to represent something otherworldly.
and that's Jesus. So I'm going to put this here at the table. Uh, it's interesting, this passage, because we find out in verse number 11 again, we find out so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. I might be reading into the text some, but, but I see a table and it's massive and there's all these sons around it and now the sons have to move over because David has invited somebody else to the table. The sons who are sitting there, they're like, hey, this is my spot. I'm thankful for God's grace. You're I'm testifying. God, thank you for your grace. Oh, God, thank you for your love for me. God, thank you that you forgave me of my sins. Oh, God, thank you that you washed me. God, thank you that you cleansed me. God, thank you that you made me brand new. Thank you that you don't hold my sins against me. Thank you so much, Lord. Wait, wait, who? Wait, who do you want to sit down here? Wait, clean them up first. Don't you know what they believe? Haven't you seen their statements? Well, don't you know what they're about? They, they can't come in here. And I'm so glad God didn't have that same rule with you and with me. Because neither one of us would have been seated at the table if there was a list on the World Wide Web about all the shortcomings and weaknesses, all the failures, all the sins, all the, all the problems that we've had in our lives. Who's your they? Who's your they? I ask you, is this your table, my table, or the king's table? Whose table is it? I mean, who is it that runs this table? Who's in charge of this table? Why do I have a cross here? I've got a cross here because at the head of this table is not my emotions. It's not my life. It's not the way I think. It's not the way I believe. It's not your life. It's not the way you think. It's not the way you believe. At the head of this table is our glorious Savior. And he is saying, I want the poor. I want the lame. I want the broken. I want the marginalized. I want the days of the whole world to know they can come to my table. It can come to my table. Oh, I'm not saying it's easy. Because some wounds have been deep. And some of us have been drinking so much from the pool of the media that it's hard to even remember our mission. And we started confusing the agenda of whatever political affiliation or whatever news media outlet we are drinking from, we started intermingling that with the gospel. And you and I have to understand the gospel rises above and all these things come underneath. Listen, there's some conversations that need to be had. Don't get me wrong. There's some things we got to talk about. Do not get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not talking about 
necessarily the building of the house right now. I'm talking about the foundation of the house. I felt a mandate from God to make sure our church was pulled together and not torn apart. And there is a demonic assignment in this world that is trying to tear apart our society. And Jesus Christ is saying, I died for all y'all. No way, no, Lord, not, not, not them. I have had friends of mine through tears, through a heavy heart, who have been abused, have to get to the point where they are willing to see that the grace of God that they need is the same grace of God their abuser needs. That is not easy. But it's gospel. I have been inspired and humbled by these friends of mine. Are you willing to scoot over? Or do people have to change first before you'll sit next to them? It's your choice. I'm just letting you know, you can do what you want to, I guess, in your house. But this daddy, our loving father, he's got rules too. And he's like, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord, I'll save him. Isn't it interesting that Jesus hung around the tax collectors and sinners? And we all like to think in the story of John chapter 8 that the woman who's caught in adultery, we all like to think that we would never be the ones to throw a stone until maybe the person who's a woman in adultery is a they in our mind. And I had to ask myself, God, am I holding any stones? Because I want to drop them. Does that mean things don't need to change? Of course they need to change, man. There's so much injustice and racism and sexism and human trafficking. There's so many problems. This, this world is broken. It is messed up. It is jacked up. And there are so many problems that need to be fixed. I'm not talking about do problems need to be fixed out there. They obviously do. I'm talking about the problems that need to be fixed in here. Will you scoot over? Will you give some space at the table for a day? Now, I'm all done here, okay? I'm all done. But I had to ask this question. I had to ask, how did he get to the table? Like, like how, did, how did Mephibosheth actually get to the table. Because remember, he, he's lame in both feet. So, so I'm trying to picture this moment when the king is saying, hey, you, you can sit at my table with my sons like you're my son. So I got these, I got these crutches here. Maybe the whole time he's, he's before the king and he's bowing and he's feeling unworthy. 
And the king now invites him to the table. He, he grabs his crutches and starts walking. Maybe, maybe he's seeing the looks of the people at the table. Maybe he's hearing the whispers of, of the other sons and daughters that are at the table. Why is he coming? And what's he doing here? And, and he's not welcome. Or maybe he's seeing smiles. I don't know, but what we do know is potentially he, he's on crutches making his way to the table. I know a lot of times in our day and age, we look at crutches as if they're bad things. Like, oh, that's just a crutch. But in this particular case, these crutches are what carried him to the table. So I'm seeing two crutches in my head and I'm seeing grace and I'm seeing mercy. And I see grace, mercy, slide. Grace, mercy, slide. Maybe it's a whole new dance. Grace, mercy, slide. It's a dance that I've had my whole life as well. I've been carried by grace and mercy. And these things brought me all the way to the table. Well, I couldn't get there on my own. But maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't crutches. Maybe he did not, maybe he didn't get there on crutches. Maybe someone carried him. Maybe one of the people who were sitting at the table heard what the king said about Mephibosheth. And they thought to themselves, I remember when I was invited to the table. I remember when I was lame in both feet. I remember when I was lost. I remember when I was broken. And maybe they, they grabbed their napkin and their, their knife and their spoon and their fork and maybe they set all their stuff down. Maybe they set down their agenda. Maybe they set down their fears. Maybe they set down their need to need to know everything that Mephibosheth believes about every particular thing at every, every particular moment in his life. Maybe he, he or she laid all that stuff down and with a heart of gratitude, gratitude and enthusiasm stood up and ran to Mephibosheth and said, hey, let me pick you up. Let me carry you. He's heavy. I'm assuming he smells good because they brought him in front of the king, so I'm assuming they cleaned him up a little bit, but, but who knows? Maybe he smells like the outside. And this is someone that's used to being on the inside. And now they have to be willing to get dirty have to be willing to leave their in-group to go to an out-group. Say, I'll carry you. I'll carry you, Mephibosheth. Because God's grace carried me. Remember the, the last time we read that Mephibosheth was carried? He was dropped. So maybe Mephibosheth is not even wanting the help. He's trying to push him away, push her away. 
And the person's like, no, no, don't, don't push me away. I know, I know you were dropped before. Maybe, maybe you're feeling like I don't want somebody to carry me. I've been dropped. The church dropped me or my family dropped me or this world dropped me and, and I'm done. Leave me alone. But, but you're hearing the sound in this moment. You're hearing the grace of God draw you close saying, son, daughter, there's a seat for you at the table. Don't listen to what all the naysayers have said. I've given you a spot at my table. Let one of my sons and daughters carry you. So here, Carrie, maybe there's one person, maybe there's multiple people. Shoreline City, are we going to be the type of church that's willing to get around people and carry them to the table and maybe even give up our seat? Because there's enough room at the table for everyone. I don't want you to think that I think that everybody at the table has to agree about everything in order to sit at the table. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Unity is not all of us agreeing about everything. But there are some main things we need to agree about. And here's some main things. That everything we believe, and whether you are rich, because some people don't want rich people at the table, or whether you're poor, because some people don't want poor people at the table, or maybe you're, you have a disability and, and you're feeling marginalized, or, or maybe you're a woman and you feel marginalized, or maybe you're white or black, or you speak Spanish, or you're from Kenya, or you're from some other part of the world and you feel like there's not a spot for you at the table, please understand. We're not saying everybody at the table is the same. The beauty is we're not the same. But we take these other things of the world and we're willing to lay them at the foot of the cross. Will you lay at the foot of the cross, your political ideology? Will you lay at the foot of the cross what you think about this group or that group? Will you lay at the foot of the cross the things you've been told to drink and believe by parents and grandparents and great-grandparents? Are you willing to allow who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in his death, burial, and resurrection to stand above every other thing in this world? We'll work out the details later because there are some details to be worked out. There are some discussions to be had. There are some tears that are probably going to be shed. And there might be some friendships that aren't able to be how they used to be. But I'm praying that we'd actually see a revival take place. I, I believe that what we're able to see, 
God do something exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask, think, or even imagine. And I'm praying that would be beyond just finances here, folks. I'm talking that we would see the church of Jesus Christ come together in ways it's never come together before. And we will call racism what's racism and sexism, what is sexism and wrong, what's wrong and, and bad, what is bad. And we're going to do all of that stuff. And we're going to stand for righteousness and truth. But at the same time, my friends, we're not going to allow our ideologies of this day. We're not going to allow our ideologies of today to ever usurp our relationship with Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is our King. And if he's inviting someone to the table, who am I to turn them away? The same grace that those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ have received is the same grace we have been honored and called to give. This is our moment, church. So are we, are we going to be a church that is willing to make room at the table? Are we going to be a church? Come on, talk to me. Are we going to be a church that moves over and says, hey, hey, sit next to me. Wow, really? You're from there? You did that? You went there? Well, let me tell you what I did and what I believed and but hey, it's about Jesus. It's not about that right now. This thing is not about us. It's about him. It's not about our name. It's about his name. It's not about our fame. It's about his fame. It's not about our message. It's about his message. Then from there, you go ahead and you live your life, not for your cause and not for your glory, but for his cause and his glory. It's messy, y'all, for it to be fleshed out. I recognize that. I'm not trying to fix every problem right now that's out there in the world. I'm trying to fix this problem that's in the church. And it's where we have elevated things above Jesus that were never meant to be elevated above Jesus. There are some very things that are important in this world. Some battles we gotta fight some walls that need to be torn down, some doors that need to be opened. Will we, will we be that church? Will we be, will, will we be the church that looks like heaven on earth? Will we be the church that'll be the hands and feet of Jesus? Because dare I say, the earth is groaning, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to stand up and be who he's called us to be and live how he's called us to live and love how he's called us to love. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray over all of us right now that you would grab a hold of our hearts and we repent for the things that we've elevated above you. Honestly, God, we're just trying to do the best we know how. Some of us have drifted. And we're just saying we need you. We need your grace and your help. The same grace that brought us to the table is the same grace that changes us when we get to the table. So would you rearrange us and make us new? Give us your eyes. Give us your voice. Give us your heart. 
Lead us and guide us into all truth and let us become less as you become greater. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ right now, you have not yet surrendered your heart and your life to him, this is your opportunity to make him first in your life. This is your opportunity to say, Jesus, I don't want to go my own way. I want to go your way. If you're sensing the grace of God drawing you close, here's your moment. Just put your hand over your heart right now. I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I admit I've made mistakes. And today, I give you my heart. I give you my life. Give me the power to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.